All right. Buenas noches. Can you hear me? All right. For some reason, I always want to sound like Arnold, <laughs> but I'm not going to do it tonight. All right. So our text comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22. Uh, if you can stand with me, please stand. Let's read the word of God. So there we read. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to hell of fire. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that we can gather together, Lord. Thank you that we can sing these songs to you, Lord, and thank you for just being able to gather together, Lord, to hear your word, to hear our songs rise to you, Lord. I pray that you would receive them as a fragrant offering, as a sweet aroma, Lord. And I pray that this time, Lord, that you would challenge us, that you would uh, guide us in the way that we should think, in the way that we should respond, and especially with a passage like this, Lord, where we consider anger and the sinfulness of anger when it is not righteous, Lord. So I pray, Father, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to contemplate, and hearts to accept the truth that you give us in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this is a, this is a interesting passage because it's on anger. And uh, normally when you hear somebody speaking on anger, you think either they got a handle on it um, or they're just uh, messing around. And so... Um, I chose this passage because most like you, uh, all of us deal with anger, you know, uh, it comes up in different ways, and so all of us struggle with anger, and so this is something, and it's not just anger, unrighteous anger, and as much as I'm preaching to you from the pulpit, I'm preaching to myself as well, because we all need to hear this. It's uh, something that I'm working in our household, and all of us are working, because anger is not an isolated issue, it's not one person, it takes two to tango. Uh, But still, nevertheless, we have to uh, hold ourselves accountable. And so anger is everyone's problem, not just one. And two passages that we're working on, that I'm working on, trying to practice is uh, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And the second one is a prudent man overlooks an insult. So those are the two that I actually want to encourage you to practice with yourself as well, with your spouses, with your kids, with everybody you come in contact with. And even with yourself, you know, because we can be angry with ourselves at times for many things. We jack it up all the time, you know. So normally when we think of anger, we think of it as an emotion. Sometimes it's called the secondary emotion because it doesn't happen first. Something happens first and then it leads to anger. Take, for example, this. You're walking in the living room and you twist your ankle on a toy that somebody left in the living room. Not only do you twist your ankle, but you end up falling down. You start feeling pain, and that's all you feel. But all of a sudden, your brothers and sisters are in the living room, and they start cracking up and laughing at you because you hurt yourself. And all of a sudden, what was merely pain, all of a sudden, you start feeling this fire within you. And it's not the enchiladas or the hot sauce you ate. It's this fire burning within you. And all of a sudden, like my Mexican mother, you start turning a different color. And then you begin to squeeze muscles you didn't know you had. And then all of a sudden, your voice changes, kind of like the Hulk. And you begin to tell everybody in the room how they're going to (laughs) die. You know, what began as pain led to embarrassment and turned into anger. 
Or kind of take one example from me when I was in middle school. So I was new to the school in Apple Valley, Apple Valley Middle School. I'm by myself, and there's a bunch of cholos hanging out with the girls, you know? And there I go, and I start drinking some water, and I'm thirsty, and it's a hot day, and these homies look at me, and homeboy says, say some fish for the water, is it? So I stop drinking water, I look at him, and I give him the look. And homeboy looks at the other guy and says, dude, did you see that guy? If those looks could kill, that's one of them. And so you see, anger is not just what you say. It's not just what you feel. It's what you look like, too. And I could be a serial killer with my looks. Imagine that. You know, I look like I could be one right now, you know. (laughs) I mean, it's crazy. But why do we become angry? At the fundamental level, it's sin in our hearts. At the most fundamental level, it's sin in our hearts. That's number one. But then there are those things such as failed expectations, our needs, the demands that we make upon one another, be it your husband, your wife, your kids, your employer, your employees. It could be assumptions. It could be perceptions, whether true or false. It's fear, insecurity, anxiety, your temperament. It could even be your upbringing, the way your parents were towards you, the way your mentors were with you, the way you perceive people look at you, the scars from which you interpret reality. All of those can be reasons why, but that doesn't justify your unrighteous anger or mine. So anger can come in as righteous or unrighteous. But for anger to be righteous, it must meet three qualifications. The first one, it must react against actual sin. Actual sin. So it must react against actual sin. The second one, it must focus on God and his kingdom and concerns. It must focus on God, his kingdom, and his concerns. And three, it should be accompanied by godly qualities of how it expresses itself in godly ways. That's important because we can justify our anger. That was wrong, but yet we sound like a, like a raging bull, you know, or like the Hulk. So it has to be accompanied by godly qualities. You see that in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, you know? You could be like the Godfather, all right? I'm going to take you out, you know? Controlled. I'm just joking. Don't do it like that. But it has to be controlled, right? So in the body of this message, I'm going to give you some examples of how these three criterias are exemplified uh, or how we should exemplify them. So what does the Bible have to say about anger? So this particular passage right here or verse is for those of you who say like this, don't mess with me because I get angry really quick. That comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 9, and it says, Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. So here it says, for the person who says, I'm hot-tempered, I know it, and I'm going to show it, well, the Bible calls you a fool, calls me a fool. So don't be too eager to be angry. In Proverbs 29, 22, it says this, An angry person stirs up conflict, and a hot-tempered one increases rebellion. So this could be talking about one person, and both are true, or can be talking about two people fighting, right? So the first one stirs up conflict, and the second one is hot-tempered. It increases rebellion, one or two. You see, there's a problem here. The following three describe women and men. I smile because I'm not going to leave people out, you know? Can't just hit the, hit the ladies and then not hit the guys. I got to hit the guys too, you know? So here, 29, uh, verses uh, 21, let me correct that. Proverbs 21, verse 19, it says, It's better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. So now we go for the guys. Proverbs 15, 18. It says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but but the slow to anger calms a dispute. 
Or Proverbs 25, 28, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. And this one is for you guys who say you never get angry, just frustrated. Proverbs 10, 18, it says this, He who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. And this particular one is going to be interesting because it actually connects with the verse right here that we read not too long ago. It says, he who conceals hatred has lying lips. So in light of this, we must ask, is there anything wrong with anger, with being angry? Is anger always wrong? Is it okay to be angry? Listen to the words of Aristotle. He said this, it is easy to fly into passion. Anyone can do that. But to be angry with the right person to the right extent, at the right time, and with the right object, and in the right way is not easy. And it is not everyone who can do it. He's right. We can't be angry in the right way apart from God helping us be the right way and act the right way. We need to be self-controlled and exhibit anger for the right reason. So everyone gets angry. The unrighteous and the righteous, there's anger. So unrighteous anger, though, is everybody's problem. So when we consider the types of people out there, including ourselves, there are those that are kind of like volcanoes, those who blow up and give full vent to their anger. They just blow up, right? You touch them and boom, they just blow up. And then there's those who are the slow-boiling ones, you know, the, the little tea, teapot, tea, teapot. And then those stew on things, and it slowly over time brews, brews, all of a sudden it gets hotter and it just hits you all of a sudden. Then you have the blame shifters, these blame others for their anger and their issues, and they, they're never to blame. Consider the song by Anna Russell that goes like this. I went to my psychiatrist to be psychoanalyzed, to find out why I killed my cat and blackened my wife's eyes. He put me on a downy couch to see what he could find, and this is what he dredged up from my subconscious mind. When I was one, my mommy hid my dolly in the trunk, and so it follows naturally that I'm always drunk. When I was two, I saw my father kiss the maid one day, and that is why I suffer now kleptomania. He steals. When I was three, I suffered from ambivalence towards my brothers. So it naturally follows I poisoned all my lovers. I am so glad that I have learned the lesson that he has taught that everything I do that's wrong is always somebody else's fault. You see, now it sounds crazy, and it is crazy. But isn't it true that we blame others for what we do? Not only for what we do, but for the anger that they cause us to come into, they say, uh, don't make me mad. Don't say that to me. It's always someone else's fault. No, it can't be me. Surely it can't be me. And then you have the deniers, those who say that they don't get angry but only frustrated. But they're lying. They're concealing their anger and allow it to come out in subtle but mean ways. And we just read about that in Proverbs, right? So we keep talking about anger. What is anger, though? What is anger? Is it a mere emotion, as we said a while ago? Is it a secondary emotion? In some sense, that's right. It is an emotion, but anger usually arises, like we said a while ago, after being embarrassed, after you feel disrespected, after that punk cut you off in the freeway and almost made you crash, or because he just cut you off, period, and didn't make you crash, right? But the question is, how do you respond? Is that anger exhibited in a godly manner, or is it a volcano, and it just erupts, and you look like you did in your BC days, right, before Christ days? So anger is more than an emotion, though. Robert D. Jones, in his book, Uprooting Anger, Biblical Hope for a Common Problem, you see, common problem, says anger 
is a whole person to active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. Listen to that again. It says, anger, our anger, is a whole person active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. That's a mouthful, but I think it's a very good, good definition because it tells us that anger is a choice. It's a response, but it's a choice. Look how we break it down. It involves everything of who we are. It's not just your emotions, because what did sin affect? The fall affected what? Affected us. But we're not just our emotions. It affected every aspect of what you are. Your mind, will, emotions, your body. You see that when you get angry, what happens to your face? You get red. What happens to your jaw? You start grinding your teeth, and you got to go to the dentist. You start getting your blood pressure up. You start feeling anxious. You start having... Uh, maybe eczema or something starts weeping through your skin. I mean, you start seeing how your body responds. It's a whole-bodied response. So we see here, according to the definition, according to Jones, it's an active response. It's something we do, not something we are or something we have. It's very important to understand that. It's not something we have or are. It's something that we do. Number two, anger involves every aspect of my humanity. We just said that, right? Not just my emotions, my mind, my beliefs, whether they're true or false. My perceptions, my will, my emotions, my body, my choices, my actions. It's a response against something. It's provoked. It's not caused. Now think about that. It's provoked, not caused. There's no causal connection. It only allows, the circumstance only allows for it to come up. It's like a golfer, right? It just comes up. Or that dumb squirrel that's behind my yard that's trying to eat my plants. It just sticks its head up out of the ground, right? It's coming out. So it's already there. It's provocation allows for it to peek its head. And it involves a negative moral judgment. That means that we make moral judgments on something that we perceive to be bad. So it's moral, right? Good or bad. And it's a judgment. It's either negative, evil, good or bad. This doesn't mean that anger is always negative, but that what we perceive is either evil and we label it as negative. So anger in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's not. God is angry. We can say then that anger is a choice, much like love is. And I threw that in there because just in case you say, you know, anger is not a choice. Somebody makes me mad. It is a choice. Just like love is a choice, anger is a choice. You choose to love someone when it is difficult. You choose to get angry when they make you feel like dirt, right? We can say that anger is a choice, like love is a choice. You choose to love. In the case of anger, we choose to get angry. We're supposed to be angry when evil prevails, when injustice reigns, and when God's kingdom and name are slandered and belittled and dragged across the floor. Again, how many times do you tell your wife, your husband, your kids, your friends, uh, don't make me mad, you make me so angry? They don't make you mad, like I said. It just provides an opportunity for that which lies dormant inside of you to awaken and make itself known, like release the kraken, you know? Kind of like that. But this should come at no surprise, for we humans have been doing this for a long time. Remember when Adam was asked by God, where are you? What did he do? He blame shifted, right? We've been doing the same thing, and that's a form of how we tend to hide he didn't uh, own up to his error or his sin. Rather, he, he did what? He blamed the woman, and then he ultimately blamed God for his own sin. But we hear this, and isn't it preposterous that Adam blames God? I mean, isn't that what we are do ourselves? We blame others for our anger? Whether we like it or not, we ultimately blame who? We're blaming God. Because he's sovereign, and he's ordained things to happen a certain way. 
you know. But still, we still have a choice in the matter. There's that interesting tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We have to understand that. So having said all of that, let's move into our text. So Jesus says, You have heard that the angels were told, You shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with this brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing or you fool, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into fiery hell. So this particular passage is found in Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, or as some have called the Sermon on the Plain. Prior to this section in the sermon, he's preached about the Beatitudes, being blessed, which kind of sets the stage for what's to follow. And then Jesus moves on to speak about how his believers are to be salt and light in the world. Before going further, though, in case someone hearing would accuse Jesus of going against the scriptures, Jesus makes this qualification. He says, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. So here we see that Jesus is in full agreement with the law and the prophets. In fact, he alone is able to fulfill them. This is what Israel, the quote-unquote son of God, was supposed to do, but they failed miserably. So God sends his one and only son, the eternal son, to actively obey his commandments and to fulfill the law and the prophets. But in verse 20, Jesus throws a twist to his listeners and he says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's the twist. Right? Could you be more righteous than the Pharisees and the scribes? It seems that by Jesus' exhortation, it's evident that the Pharisees were known for their righteous deeds. But who exactly are these Pharisees? There were a group of religious laymen during the first century who promoted and practiced purity laws, the law of Moses, according to the written and oral traditions. Their name is associated with those who are apart or separatists. They desired to apply the Torah to every aspect of life. So far, so good, though, right? That's what we're supposed to do, apply God's law, God's word, God's instruction to our lives. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to shape our lives according to the word of God and his instructions and his commands. The apostle Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, concluded, quote, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So we know that the law is good, right? And by the way, Torah is not just command or law. It also means instruction. That's why they loved God's instruction because they told them how to live. So wouldn't we agree with this, that it was a good thing? The Pharisees valued God's word and they constructed it. They actually... Um, constructed a fence around God's word. Now, this is interesting, and this is why Jesus ends up having kind of like a little collision with them. So the Pharisees memorized the Torah. They worked primarily in the synagogues, but they created a fence around the word, meaning to say this is where the tradition of the elders comes in. And that's why Jesus would say, and you can hear them saying, you elevate the tradition of the elders and the tradition of men higher than the tradition of God. Because they would make rules upon rules so that you wouldn't break God's main command. So it was well-intentioned. But what happened as time went by, they actually elevated this higher. So if you broke this, it had the same value or the same consequences as if you had broken God's actual law. And that was a problem. But they had good reason to do this. I mean, look at them. How Israel had messed up so many times. According to Deuteronomy 22, the blessing and curses of the covenant, they'd messed up. They got taken over by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, now the Romans. So they kept messing up, and so they had to be pure. At least that's what they wanted to do. So 
This is why they were acting the way they were acting. And so Jesus is saying, you got to be more pure than these guys. you got to be more righteous than these guys to enter the kingdom of heaven. So the people that he was talking to, his audience, were used to seeing how religious the Pharisees were. They seemed to obey God's word. After all, they devoted their lives to do that, to being God's teachers or teachers of God's word and doers of his word. But here's something interesting, and we got to be fair too. We normally associate the word Pharisee with a hypocrite. Right, Because we see, but before Jesus uh, has an issue with them in the scriptures, you see that Jesus would preach in the synagogues and they would actually give him a hearing. He would talk with them. In fact, you have Nicodemus, you have Joseph of Arimathea. Some of the guys even came up and Luke would tell him when somebody was trying to kill him, get out of here. So not all of them were hypocrites, but there were a few that were. And so what were they trying to do? They were actually hoping to be more righteous. For what reason? Because they believed that if they could follow the law exactly like it was and not break it, and they can get the people to worship the same way, that God would finally send them the Messiah. And so while well-intentioned, sometimes they did mess up. And so I think we have to see that and give them at least that credit. But they did mess up. So Jesus tells them that you must be more righteous than the Pharisees. But how can that be, though? Because, again, they seem like the externally they got it all under control. So from external appearances, that's what it seems like. Anyone can appear to have control, though, right? On the outside, we have this facade, so it seems like this guy's, this girl, they got it, they got it uh, taken care of. They, they really don't have any problems. Just talk to their husband or their wife or their brothers and sisters and see how they are. <laughs> they ain't perfect. We ain't perfect. We all got jack- We're all jacked up, you know? So we need Jesus. So how can, it do, how can they do it, though? They seem to be godly. But here's the thing, deep below sin lurks and its desires to have you and control you. So Jesus is now going to tell us that simply appearing to keep the law is not good enough. The Pharisees appearing to keep the law is not good enough. So let's see what the passage says. So Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. Now he's not quoting the tradition of the elders, rather he's quoting one of the Ten Commandments. I'm going to quiz you, Sunday school class. What commandment is he citing? Numero seis. Number six. So he's citing the sixth commandment. So murder is ultimately an offense against God. Listen to what God says. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every beast I will require it. And from every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. I mean, Pastor Brian just told us about uh, human dignity and how God created, right? And this notion of human's dignity, humanity's dignity, and being made in the image of God, we have value. But you ought not to desacralize. You ought not to kill, to murder that which you cannot restore. It is a violation of God's command. And so here we see that God takes it very seriously. But Jesus has been talking about murder, right? He's talking about the actual committing of a crime that you can see and for which you could be judged externally. But here comes the twist. Jesus says, but I tell you. So he's in agreement with everything the Old Testament is saying. But now he's going to give you something more. He's going to say this. Everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says you fool will be subject to hellfire. Do you see what Jesus just did right here? Jesus takes the sixth commandment and gives her the deeper meaning, the spiritual meaning, the principle that lies behind the the prohibition. 
He demonstrates that the intentions of the heart are just as important as the action. The intentions of your heart are just as important as the action. And just kind of like a little segue, but I'll bring it back. That's why Jesus says to lust upon a woman, or for ladies, men, is equivalent to adultery. The principle, the intent, comes prior to content. The intentions of the heart lead you to commit such an action. So Jesus equates murder with anger in the heart. It's very important to think about. The heart is a fountain of action. Elsewhere, Jesus says this, but what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart, and this defiles a person. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murders, etc. There it is again. That's Matthew 15, 19 through 20. So God prohibits murder, but Jesus says not only are we supposed to not murder, but he takes it a step further. And he says we're not supposed to be angry with a person because anger is murder in the heart. So it is the same anger that leads a person to eventually commit murder. It's the same anger in the heart that leads you to commit murder. It's the same thing when you go back to the garden. When did Adam and Eve sin? When they took of the fruit? No, the taking of the fruit was only the evidence of what had already happened inside. They had decided to disobey God. It began in the heart. And the actual eating of the fruit, that's why you don't buy apple products. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. The actual eating of the fruit is evidence that they had already sinned in their heart. So it was only a visible manifestation of what had happened. You see? So Jesus takes it deeper. What happens on the inside is what's going to happen on the outside. So that's why you have to be careful. Guard your heart. Guard your mind. Important to manage your thoughts and your emotions. We are to take inventory of our emotions and, of some, and do something about them. Isn't this what happened to Cain and Abel? Think about it. Look at this. He says, Now Abel became a shepherd of the flocks, but Cain worked the, gar- the ground. In the course of time, Cain presented some of the land's produce as offerings to the fruit. Some of the produce, not the best, some. And Abel also presented an offering, some of the first fruits of his flock and their fat portions. So the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but he did not have regard for Cain and his offering. So Cain was furious. He said he was very angry. Why was he angry? Because God didn't accept his offering. And he looked despondent. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? A bit further we read, as you go further in the text, he says, Cain spoke to his brother Abel. Seems like he took him out to the, uh, wherever he was taking him out. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed them. You see, what began in the heart with this anger, with this fury, led to the murder of his own brother. So in light of this, Jesus' words make all the more sense. Right? To be unrighteously angry with someone is synonymous to murder. Murder, then, again, begins in the heart as anger, and anger is a choice. So man's anger is generally always unrighteous. It doesn't glorify God. It doesn't seek after God's righteousness or restoration. Its goal is to punish, to get back at, to jab back at, to stab, to produce uh, enmity, to get back and say, how could you do this to me? I'll hold it against you, to have vengeance. It's generally about me and my kingdom, not God's. It never produces restoration. So we must take care to understand how anger works, lest we make the same mistakes. So you see here, then, Jesus' brother, James, gives us some exhortation of how we ought to think and how we ought to understand anger again. And you see the same line of understanding from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's one thread, and it functions in the same way. James, Jesus' brother, tells us this. 
Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is why James later on says this, What causes quarrels and what causes fights again amongst you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you do what? Murder. And again, this anger that leads to murder or the actual murder itself, that's the problem. So we see that evil desires lead forth to sin and sin leads forth to death. So unrighteous anger is always evil and sinful and if not tamed can only lead and not only lead to spiritual death but also to physical death of another. So you may ask, but what about when uh, you're in the right or you perceive that someone has offended you, slighted you, disrespected you? Shouldn't you blow up just to teach them a lesson? Shouldn't you let them have a piece of your mind? Shouldn't you become angry simply because they become angry? You're angry at me? I'm going to get angry at you, fool. I mean, you're going to do that? I mean, does that make sense? Isn't that ridiculous? Like, how dare you be mad at me? Can't be mad at me, fool, you know? Like, man, it's ain't Burger King your way right away. So, God has some great news and some unwanted advice. I say unwanted advice because when we're angry, we don't want advice. We don't want to be told what to do, right? We want to usurp the throne of God and do it our way. We want to do it like Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. But God says this, vengeance is mine. Whose? God's. So your job and mine is to let God be God and trust that the judge of the universe will always do what is right on his own time. You see, look in Proverbs 15, 1 through 2, God tells us how we ought to respond. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. A gentle answer turns away anger, wrath, but a harsh word stirs up wrath. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge attractive, but the mouth of fools blurts out foolishness. This is something we all need to practice. This is interesting too. Think about this. The one who becomes angry is being what? Foolish. So why do you join in the foolishness? Right? I always say this. I don't practice it, but I say this. If I'm being an idiot, if I'm being foolish, if I'm being a punk, why do you want to join and be a fool with me? Let me be the fool and you correct me. Or let me have the hot coals, you know? It doesn't justify my anger. But why have two fools when you can have one? One will suffice. You don't need two. Now you're both going to burn the house. Just kidding. But you know what I mean? So this verse should slap us in the face, right? Because we need to challenge ourselves to practice this. And it's interesting, too, because we're good to quote this to somebody else, but we don't quote it to ourselves. Because it's so easy to see the log in somebody else's eye, or at least we think it's a log. It's really a speck of dust. But then we got a big old two-by-four in our eyeballs, and we think that, look, you know, you're walking around, and you're getting hit. Like, they keep hitting me. Well, you keep running into the wall, you know? It's crazy. So make sure that you hold the same standard for others. Put it to yourself, too. Apostle Paul tells us that same thing. Jesus does the same thing. So James also provides us with some valuable insight. He says this, My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Let me read that again. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. 
For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. God is telling us what to do to receive that, to ask for forgiveness, to respond slowly, to think clearly. Human anger does not glorify God, nor does it accomplish God's righteousness, because it's about me. It's all about me. You made me feel this way. How dare you make me feel like this? It's all me, 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 you, you, you. This type of anger is what he calls moral impurity and evil. This is what the world is like. This is what you and I were like before Christ came into our lives. Should we go back and lick the vomit that we once vomited? We shouldn't go back. We ought to be more like Christ. Isn't that what our earthly pilgrimage is supposed to be? Christoformity, to be formed into Christ, to become in the image of Christ. It is our destiny. It is our goal. It is our journey. You can't do this alone. You have to do it in community. We are predestined to become like Christ. So let's put off the old man and put on the new man, which is being renewed day by day. And then James, again, like I said, provided us with that practical advice. So first he tells us this. We ought to do more listening than talking, more listening than reacting. Why is that? Because we talk too much. We like the sound of our voice too much. But where much talking abounds, what else abounds? Sin. Right? There's always sin. When you talk too much, you sin more. If we listen first, then we'll be better able to understand what the other person is saying. Maybe we misunderstood. You know? If we listen, seek first to understand, then to be understood. If we listen first, maybe we'll get it. How many times have you reacted negatively to your friend, to your husband, to your wife, to your family member without listening to everything that they've told you? Considering the whole picture, you interrupt like I do. You know? How long does it take for you to become angry when you're in a disagreement? Are you a volcano? Are you a steward? You know? Are you hysterical or historical? You know? You just hold it in and then you just kind of just toss it out. It's pretty fast. It's pretty easy to become angry. And then we make up the excuse, well, that's the way I was born. Uh, that's, that's my upbringing. My mom and my dad were angry people, so I'm angry. Or, you know... Um, I had a lot of influence. That might be true, but that doesn't justify it. So what are you going to do now that you know? What are you going to do about it? Right? We're too quick to get wounded. We think we're tough, but we're too thin-skinned. We're so thin-skinned. Aren't Christians supposed to be thick-skinned? We're supposed to be able to deal with what is tossed at us. We quickly launch into attack mode, and we attack who? Those closest to us. The ones who love us. The ones who take us as we are. The ones who know us better. The ones who see everything about us. The ones who accept us. Others wouldn't accept us like this. And then you, you act like that towards your kids. I act like that towards my kids, my wife, and so forth. You know what I'm saying? We, we tend to wound those that are closest to us. It's an easy exhortation, but it takes effort and intentionality. You have to work at it. We need to have a plan before we go into the battlefield. That's why a Coach Wooden, former UCLA basketball coach, used to say this, failing to prepare is preparing to fail. Failing to prepare is preparing to fail. If you don't have a plan, what are you going to do? You don't got a map. You don't know where you're going. Put gas in the car. Don't sit in the car without gas, you know? He's right. We need to have a game plan on how to put James' advice into practice. But you're going to say, it's so difficult. To which I'm going to say, well, let me be frank with you. I'll be Car- I'm Carlos, but I'll be frank. And uh, the reason why we don't do it is because why? 
We don't think we have a problem. We deny it. Or we say that just the way I am. Or we say it's too difficult. We're too lazy. Or we just plainly don't want to do it. And we're in direct disobedience to God. You just don't want to do it. God doesn't suggest to us that we should try not to become angry. He tells us, he commands us, don't be angry. Don't sin in your anger. So the next time you're confronted with the thing that you know is going to expose the anger, you will need to control your tongue and listen intently and slow to, to become angry. Think about what the other person is saying. Look past the facial expression. Look past their tone. Look past the loudness of their voice. It doesn't justify their anger. They, you can be receiving that. So I always hear this, and it's true. It's not what you say. It's how you say it. That's so true. It is true. But when I screw up, when I mess up, do we need another fool in the room? We don't. So the other person should put on Christ and be more Christ-like and help the one who's acting like a fool calm down, right? A gentle answer calms the fire. It doesn't justify the anger. Hear me out, though. It doesn't justify it. We can't use it as license. But what I am saying is, look past all the externalities and see what lies behind. That's what Jesus said, right? Think about it. That's what Jesus said. It's not just a murder that's committed on the outside. What's happening on the inside? So asking the question, what's really going on with that person? Why are they angry like that? Are they a broken glass? Are they a wounded person? They might be. It doesn't justify it. But how can you better help that person become more Christ-like if they are a Christian? Right? So, it's our duty to be self-controlled and in charge of our own vessels. So let's practice that. So, is anger ever okay? I'm the opinion that it is. Not just because I tend to be angry, but anger is a good thing. We're made in the image of God, and we're to be his stewards. Christians are God's children, and we are to be about our Father's business. God hates sin, and we ought to hate sin. God hates injustice, we ought to hate injustice. But how do you manifest that? How do you do it in a godly manner, or do you blow up? Our anger must be controlled and it must be just and righteous. It ought to be expressed correctly and for righteousness' sake. Then it is okay to express anger, and, but not losing control. This is the type of anger we see in God. God anger, God's anger is always righteous. Listen to Nahum 1.3, right after hesitations 1.4. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. Listen. The Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. So we see a few things in there. God is slow to anger, and he never leaves injustice in that sense. He always pays it back. So we see that God is slow to anger, and he will bring justice in his time and in, on his terms, not our terms. This demonstrates something about God. It demonstrates his patience towards us. His desire for us to be reconciled not only to him, but to one another. Being slow to anger coincides with James' admonition to being slow to anger for us. God is slow to anger, and as his children, we ought to be perfect like our Father is perfect and copy him. So he is slow to anger. Think about this. Sin is high treason against God. If anyone should be quick to be angry with, with anger or with sin, it should be God. But God the one against whom cosmic treason is committed against, is calm and gentle towards it. He's expressing his anger, as we'll see here shortly, but he's controlled and he's patient and he's given us time. We're so quick to let it rip at the first instance that we feel offended and slighted. If we're honest with ourselves, you know that's true. 
In the following verse here that comes, we see how God brings about judgment against unrighteousness. In Romans 1.18, we read this, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of people who do what? Who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. So here we see that God reveals his holy and righteous anger, his wrath against what? Against sinful humanity. Why? Because they suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. They know that it is wrong and yet they do it. And then they engage in the wholehearted approval of his sin and they call evil good and good evil. And that is what the unrighteous do. And then in the final verse here, how God expresses his anger, this one relates to the end times. In this case, the previous one, Paul is telling us how God reveals his anger now, right? If you look at the, the New City Catechism that we teach the kids, you know, God will punish in this life and the life to come. It's not just that he saves it for there. He's saving it for there, but he's also punishing now because we're sinners. He says this in Romans 2, 5 through 10. Because of your hardened heart and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. When God's righteous judgment is revealed, he will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in good and good seek, I'm sorry, who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and also for the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does what is good, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. So again, we see that God's wrath is being stored up for the day of wrath, that is, the day of judgment, for who will not repent. Granted, this is talking about those who are not in Christ, but nevertheless, there's an important principle to see here, that God takes sin seriously, and we ought to not take God for granted, but take God seriously as well. It is unfitting for us as Christians to be sinfully angry. We're commanded by God to repent and put on Christ. So from these three passages or verses that we saw about God's anger, we see that God's anger is in the following manner. God's anger is controlled and purposeful. It is not selfish. It's an expression of concern, an expression of concern. It's designed to correct or curtail destructive behavior. An expression of care. It's meant to restore. It's directed towards injustice. It's directed at willful disobedience. So again, God's righteous anger is righteous. And again, because we are his children, we are to be holy as he is holy, as he is righteous. And who can demonstrate such a righteous anger? Well, Jesus does. Jesus' anger is righteous. Now consider Jesus. Who is he? The God-man, the eternal Son of God who put on flesh. He shows us what it means to exhibit anger in the righteous way, what it looks like. Jesus is perfect humanity. Jesus is what we're supposed to become. Jesus is the prototype. He is the key, the mystery of unlocking everything. That when you see Jesus as true humanity, that is, is what's destined for us to be in the image of Christ. That's Christoformity. We're supposed to be like Christ. When you see Jesus, that's what a true human is supposed to be. Adam messed up by sinning. Israel messed up by sinning. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the one who took on flesh, shows us how a human ought to live empowered by the Spirit. That is true humanity, and that's who we're to emulate. So what does it look like when Jesus is angry? So the first one comes to us in John 2, 13 through 17. And this is when Jesus cleanses the temple. And there we read this. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found a whole bunch of stuff. He found people selling oxen and sheep and doves, and he also found money changers sitting there. 
After making a whip of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling doves, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So you see that aspect of it, right? But then in Matthew, he gives us another element to this, and he tells us another aspect. And he says this, It is written, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of thieves. You see what's happening here? So John is telling us that this had become a marketplace in the temple. And then Matthew, being the Jew that he is, tells us, what is the temple for? It's a house of prayer for all nations. But you guys have turned it into a marketplace, a den of thieves. So Jesus is angry with the money changers and the merchants for turning his house, father's house, into a marketplace and a den of thieves. They should have not been in the temple. The temple was to be a solemn place for prayer, reflection, and contrition. But the merchants and the money changers brought an entirely different ambience to the temple. There is no quietness. There is animals there making noise. This is a place where people would go and meet with God. And then Mark gives us the other element that I mentioned a while ago. Not only is it a house of prayer, but for all nations. That's one instance of how we see Jesus angry, but righteously angry for the right things, right? It's justified, it's exhibited in a controlled fashion, it's not cruel, and he's doing it for the kingdom of God, and it's for the righteous reason that he's doing it. And then we see another one where Jesus heals somebody in anger. And this takes place here when he entered the synagogue again, and a man who was there with a shriveled hand, in order to accuse him, they were watching him. Who's they? The scribes, the Pharisees, and the lawyers were watching him closely to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. This is crazy. They know he heals, and they're watching to see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand up before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save life or to kill? Man, Jesus' questions are good, huh? They really expose the heart. Questions open up the questioner and expose the assumptions in the heart. So he said again, let's just read it because it's so good. Is it lawful? You can just see him going, aha. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they were silent. Here's where Jesus gives them the look. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their heart and told the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Immediately the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him, how they might what? They might kill him for doing good. You see what Jesus is doing here? So we see that Jesus is angry for the right reason. Jesus is about to heal a man. The Pharisees know that Jesus can heal. Ah, but he can't break the tradition of the elders because he might break the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees, being so hard of heart, they can't separate the weightier matters of the law. What's more important, life wasn't the Sabbath made for man, not man for the Sabbath? So you have to weigh the weightier matters of the law. So we see not only can they not separate or distinguish between the weightier matters of the law, he was also addressing their oral traditions, the tradition of the elders. So you can see what Jesus might be thinking. Is it really a difficult question to answer? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or evil? Really? You see, these Boy Scouts were answering the question. They weren't answering the question because the answer was obvious. It is good and therefore lawful to do good on the Sabbath. But to not answer this question reveals the heart of the Pharisees. 
Jesus gives them the look. But it's not a look that belittles them. It is a look of incredulity. He's grieved in his heart that this man is messed up. He has, he's a cripple. And God is going to restore this man. And these guys are more worried about not breaking healing on the Sabbath, which is a good thing. And yet these guys are going to not only want to accuse him, but now they want to kill him. It's a look of how hard and evil can you be in the inside. Don't you see what's going on? We kind of see this kind of answer today among people around us and politicians who support abortion. So imagine Jesus asking this question. Is it lawful to do good by not terminating the life in your womb or to do evil and then terminate that life within? If it is a human life, then what right do you have to terminate that human life and call it good, reproductive health, a woman's body, a woman's autonomy, all for the sake of preserving those seats in Congress and for preserving your college degree and dreams and the feminist ideology? Jesus is angry with this type of an answer, and so should we. Thus, anger rightly expressed and for the right reason is righteous. So Jesus does not sin in his anger, and we too are not supposed to sin in our anger. The Apostle Paul tells us the same thing in Ephesians 4.26 when he says this, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. And don't grieve the devil. I don't grieve, oh my gosh. Don't give the devil an opportunity. He says, be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. When we're angry, we're not supposed to simmer in it. We're not supposed to be furious about how we were treated and how whatever lies they say about us, or if they tell us the truth and we don't like it. We are to be perfect, like I said a while ago, as our Heavenly Father. We're supposed to be like Jesus. We're supposed to follow Jesus' example. We are to deal with it quickly. By it, I mean anger and not simmer in the anger. Our anger must be done in the right way, expressed in the right way and in a godly manner. If we're not careful, we do give the devil an opportunity, and then he uses us for his purposes. So now we're acting like the devil. But also we give him a beachhead. The word here for opportunity is topos, which really means a beachhead. It's kind of a a military type of a term, if the military lands, they establish their fort, and so they got an ability to take over at least or to have a stronger ground. So we ought not to be giving them an opportunity for his purposes, for landing an arsenal against us and our relationships. Sinful anger is never good, and we have many reasons why we shouldn't sin in our anger. Well, first, because God tells us not to sin in our anger. He tells us not to be angry, because anger in the heart is synonymous with murder in the heart. We must repent and seek forgiveness, but we must also be ready and willing to forgive when someone asks us to forgive them. Because how easy is it to say this? You hurt me. I would never do that to you. I would never do that to you. You messed with me. You lied to me. I elevated you high. Well, that's our fault because we elevated that person up. They should have been a certain way, and then they hurt us. But then you know what you're doing now. You're elevating yourself now, and you're becoming proud and say, I would never do that. Yes, you would. You just don't know. And unless God is helping us, unless God is filling us with the Spirit, unless we're walking according to the Spirit, we won't give in to that stuff. And so we must be ready to extend forgiveness. Because unless they ask you for forgiveness, forgiveness hasn't happened if they're alive. You have to have a spirit, a heart of readiness to be able to forgive when they ask. Because Jesus said, you know, 
want to be forgiven, forgive. You're supposed to forgive time and time again. And then you hear the prayer, forgive us as we have forgiven others. So do you want to be forgiven the way you forgive? And if you don't forgive, then you're not going to be forgiven. Kind of hits you from all angles, you know? So we must repent, seek forgiveness, and be ready to extend forgiveness. The other reason why it's good not to sin in our anger is because it avoids injuring yourself. Physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. I mean, it raises your blood pressure, it releases prostaglandins, it causes you to have a higher chance of clots, heart attacks. I mean, a whole bunch of stuff. Stroke. It also helps us avoid damaging our relationships with our spouses, with our children, with our family, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We also avoid displeasing God and bringing, uh, displeasing Him and not dishonoring Him, but by bringing Him honor by doing it the right way and obeying His commands. You know, it's interesting. We sang this song, and the scriptures here tell us the same thing, that they shall know us by the love we have for one another. They shall know that you're my disciples by the love we have for one another. We're so quick to quote that, but do we live it out? And we're so quick to apply it to others, whether outside the church or maybe inside the church, but how about to the person sitting next to you? Do you see them as your brother and sister in Christ, not just your spouse, the one you've conquered and now the conquering is done and so now they get on your nerves for any little thing that you thought was cute, now it makes you mad, you know, all for a sake of preference, you know, like, oh, that's so cute. Now you're made, why in the world is she doing that? Why is he doing that, you know? But think about it. We're so good to quote this to the outside, and all of a sudden we forget that we're not enemies, that we're family, that we're in this together, whether it be the church, whether it be your children, and even for your children, we're supposed to be a display of what it's supposed to be like, but yet you see your your kids acting a certain way, like, where in the world did they get that? They got it from you, man, or from her, you know? They pick it up from us. Like, don't do that again. Like, why are you doing it? Because I can. You know, you're not supposed to do that. So we're not supposed to do it. So we need to apply this passage. You know, they'll, they'll know that we are, we are his disciples, his children, by the love we have for one another. So this might, must be evident in our marriages, in our parenting, in our obeying our parents, if that's your age, in honoring your parents, in dealing with each other, brothers and sisters in Christ, in the church. So to conclude, we need to have a biblical understanding of anger. We need to accept ownership for our choices. And we need to apply God's word. We need to be doers of God's work, a word, and not make any more excuses. Proverbs 19.11 tells us that a person's insight gives them patience and is virtuous to overlook an offense. Again, a person's insight gives them patience and is virtuous to overlook an offense. So again, it is not just that the physical action of murder is wrong. It is wrong, but the intent of the heart leads to committing the action. So be mindful of your heart. Be mindful of what you allow it to simmer on. Deal with that anger right away and express it in a righteous manner. And if it's not righteous, you've got to work on it. Seek help. Don't hide it from others. I mean, just don't explode in front of them, but, you know, pray with one another that you may be healed and restored. Seek friendships that you can do that, you know? Many times we want to pretend like everything's okay because we're afraid that people won't accept us. You know, God already knows everything about us and he accepts us. So let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for uh, allowing me to speak today, Lord, and uh, to be able to share this word with my brothers and sisters, Lord. Um, as I, even, if I hear, even as I hear it, Lord, it just hits me straight in the heart because 